0: Hi everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. As always, this is Mike Wong. Now, although I try to pass as a podcaster when I'm not doing science, our guest today is the real deal when it comes to podcasting about Star Trek. Justin Ozer has hosted numerous Star Trek shows over the years, and is currently the host of Infinite Diversity, a Star Trek universe podcast, along with his friends Brandon and Chrissy, over on the United Federation of Podcasts Network. As a fan of science and Star Trek, Justin has been a longtime supporter of Strange New Worlds. In fact, I'll bet that a significant fraction of you found out about this podcast by hearing me guest on one of Justin's. I've had the pleasure of meeting Justin in person at a few Star Trek conventions. (laughs) Remember when we could have those things? Anyway, one of my favorite things to do with him is wander the vendor room and check out all of the books for sale, because reading Star Trek novels is a passion that we also share and forms the theme at the foundation of this episode of Strange New Worlds. That's right, we're going to be talking about the science in the novels. My conversation with Justin is situated around two stories in the Starfleet Corps of Engineers series of novellas. Ishtar Rising, which is a Venus-centric story, and Balance of Nature, where we visit a planet with a civilization of sentient insectoids. Now, naturally, when you put two podcasters together intending to record one episode, you come out with well over an episode's worth of material. So this conversation will be split over two episodes, where today we'll spend time getting to know Justin, and do a bit of an overview of the Trek-lit universe, and talk about the science of Ishtar Rising. And the next time, we'll get around to balance of nature. So, without further ado, let's dive into the story. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Justin Ozer to Strange New Worlds. Welcome, Justin.
1: Hi, Mike. You know, it's so great to be on Strange New Worlds because I've really admired the podcast. I've had you on a couple of podcasts that I've done, a couple of Earl Grey episodes and one of Infinite Diversity, and it's just wonderful to, to come on the show and to, to be here.
0: Likewise, it's it's great to have you here to return the favor, finally, after being on so many of your podcasts. Um, uh, because of that uh, one-way exchange up till now, you've had numerous chances to ask me about my Star Trek origin story, but I've never had the opportunity to actually ask you for yours. So how did you first encounter Star Trek, Justin, and what role has it played in your life?
1: Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking, because I feel like I have an unusual story. <laughs> because it it took a long time for me to get there. So the first time I saw any Star Trek, I mean, I think I had some awareness in, in my childhood growing up in the 80s and early 90s. But the first time I remember seeing Star Trek was when Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country came out in the theaters. I was 12 years old. And I think my dad took me and I just heard about this 25th anniversary thing. It was a big deal. I remember going to our local theater, there was a long line and I was like, oh, there's was really something going on here. But at the time, it was it was just another movie that I saw. And at the time when I was a kid, I I loved going to the movies. I'd go just about every week. And it was just another in the succession of things. And I just I was kind of like, oh, that was great. I didn't go further with it because um, my parents weren't really big fans or I didn't have friends who were fans. Uh, a couple years later, though, um, I managed to catch a season of Voyager mm. um, on its first run. So this was during my senior year of high school, which it's a it's a totally different story, but uh it was a difficult year for me. And I remember at the time I would like eat dinner in my room <laughs> alone, like upstairs where where I had like a little TV, and I would watch Voyager every week. Um and I remembered really loving it and being like, Oh, this is great and, and it, it gave me a lot of comfort that year. But then I went off to college And I didn't really kind of follow up on it, although I had a friend in college who was a big Star Trek fan and was totally into DS9. And I remember I went over to his room once with some other friends and we watched an episode of DS9. It must have been season five or something like that. This was 97 or something like that. Season four or five. All I remember from it is, you know, Odo shape shifting, and I was like, it's kind of cool, but didn't they do that kind of thing in Terminator 2? What's the big deal? So, <laughs> so, like, again, it was one of those missed opportunities. And so I, you know, after that, I went to college, got a job and all that kind of stuff. And then I met my wife in um, 2004, and she was a huge Star Trek fan. She'd actually been a big Star Trek fan since she was a kid in the 70s watching um the reruns of of TOS, like so many people did at the time, and she'd seen all the the movies in the theaters, starting with the motion picture, and loved TNG and DS9 and all that kind of stuff, right? So I th- I'm sure it's something that had come up, and I was like, oh, what, what should introduce me to this Star Trek thing? And for some reason, I think one of the first things we tried was the motion picture, and at the time, I was oh, like, no. this is just not doing <laughs> it for me. But then, you know, fast forward a couple of years, right? And there's, you know, a big splash that's being made for the 2009 movie that's coming up. And I'm like, oh, this kind of sounds interesting. And my wife was skeptical, you know, having seen all the other Star Trek stuff. She's like, I don't know. I guess we'll see what it's about, but we'll see it. So I saw it in the theaters, and I remember being blown away by it. I was like, this is amazing. Okay, I need to go back and rewatch everything that I missed. Um, Now, (laughs) at this part, people often ask me, why did you do that? Because I went, instead of going back to, like, TOS, which might make sense with a Kelvin movie, Mm -hmm. I went to TNG because it was one of my wife's favorites and... I fell in love with that show. I watched the, I think I started that in about 2010 or so. And I did an entire watch through of TNG, did another watch through. And then I was like, okay, what else is there? Um, so then um, I went on to DS9. I almost gave it up <laughs> after a little <laughs> bit because I loved the pilot. But, um, you know, some of the other episodes in the first season, I was like, I don't know about this. But my wife was like, keep going. ds 9s great. Keep going, keep going. So I kept going. And I really loved it. And it ended up, by I don't know the third season being my favorite Star Trek series which it pretty much still is and that's the point at which I think my fandom kind of accelerated and I went on to kind of rewatch watch or, or watch for the first time all of the things up to 2016 when I got caught up to everything but another thing that happened which is relevant to this podcast um, is that after I finished DS9 for the first time In August of 2014, I thought, there's got to be more to this story. They can't have just left it here. And I was delighted that, you know, they had some relaunch novels that started in 2001 to continue the story of DS9 past the show. So that's when I started reading Star Trek novels and I really haven't stopped since in almost seven years reading one about every week. So wow. and then, you know, from there, as, as things grew, I got on social media to talk about and got into podcasting and going to conventions. And now it's just such a big part of my everyday life and rewatching episodes and reading novels and interacting on social media every single day. So, I know it's a long story, but it took me a while to get there.
0: (laughs) No, that's a great story. And like you said, very unique, uh, I feel, with your slow engagement with the different movies and series and then that sort of tipping point. Um, Just like, I guess, a lot of fans that I know of my generation, people, you know, missed a lot of Star Trek from before their time, but then with the 2009 movie, got really, really excited to go back and rewatch everything. And the, the books, what you said about the books really resonates with me, because that's also how I felt about the books. I started reading the books between Enterprise and the 2009 movie, because it felt like this empty space. And I wanted to pick up on all of the storylines that you know had had been left off in the TV shows that it seems like you know after nemesis, yeah, maybe there could be another TNG story. It seems like they were sort of pressing the reset button with B4. Mm-hmm. So what happens to those characters? What happens after GS9? What happens when Voyager gets back? Yeah. Um, and that's why I started picking up the novels. And um, yeah, just like you haven't stopped haven't stopped since.
1: <laughs> yeah. And and I love it also because I've seen all of the on-screen Star Trek, a lot of it multiple times, but with the novels And novellas and short stories and all that you get new stories you have not experienced before. So you can kind of keep immersing yourself in this world and you keep getting new stuff because there is so much of it. There's, I don't know, 800 something novels. (laughs) So there's just just tons of it, even if you've seen everything on screen. That's what I love how it expands things out.
0: Mm-hmm. And today we're going to be discussing the science in a couple of those novels and novellas um like you said justin you're an absolute monster when it comes to these things, just gobbling them up <laughs> oh. uh and you know i I thought i was I was the monster before I met you um uh, by my tally, thanks to the three novellas that we uh read for this podcast i've burst through into triple digits. I am now just over 100 That's great, uh, novels or novellas, but yeah. I think you have me beat by a long shot. I'm, so.
1: uh, I'm closing in on 400, <laughs> believe wow. it or not. And it's, uh, it's I don't know, it's, it's crazy because I thought at a certain point it would be like, okay, I'm going to get tired of this. I'm not going to want to read it like every week until I get it done, which is going to take, I don't know, 15 years or something, because there's so many of them. But I've just been doing it like every single week and and it's just really added up. I mean, I remember, I think I broke triple digits probably, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago or something like that. But then it's just, <laughs> and like some years, I've, I will have more than 50. It'll be like 70 or 80, including novellas and stuff, which are shorter. But it still counts because it's an individual release. But... But no, I mean, I think it's, it's wonderful when people can read the novels. I mean, not all fans read the novels or are interested. So that you've read 100, I think you're already, you know, far ahead of, of, of what a lot of people have, have read. But, but people can really start anywhere. I think that's the thing. People can feel daunted by it. But you can kind of try to dip in anywhere. And the authors are usually pretty good about catching you up about stuff you might have missed.
0: Where would you suggest that a fan who's never read any of the
1: novels starts? So that's a big question, because usually when someone asks me that, I ask them about their favorite series, because it really depends on what you're talking about, right? Like, if you really love the original series, there's a ton of original series novels, right? One thing I would definitely advise is, for the most part, try to stay away from the Bantam books from the 60s and 70s. The, the quality is not too—there's a couple of gems in there, I would say, but— where it really gets going is with the um, the kind of pocket novels that started in 1979, because that has really the best of, of what's in the, in the Trek novels. So if it's the original series, I mean, I, I have some favorites from, from that that I've read. For example, Spock's World is my all-time favorite novel because it's an incredible story of the whole sweep of Vulcan's history, starting from, you know, the formation of its solar system like up to the twenty third century and it has a great present day. So there's like that kind of thing if you're into Spock and Vulcans and, you know, if you're into Uhura, there's Uhura's song, which I haven't read yet, but I've heard is really a great novel. So like sometimes it it depends on the characters and there's some recent TOS novels that have been done like The Captain's Oath and Antares Maelstrom, which are really great you know, continuations of things in the five-year mission or, you know, the motion picture era, things like that. And for, you know, TNG, there's a lot of really great novels, but they're all the post-Nemesis novels that take place after Nemesis, starting with Death and Winter, which is really great. Mm-hmm. If you're into, and stop me if I'm going on too long on this. No, but, please. But it, it really is, there's a lot of possibilities for it. Then for Deep Space Nine... Um, which is where I started. I started with the Avatar two book series, which is an incredible, incredible kind of continuation and kicking off of of those post series novels. There's also one called A Stitch in Time, which is written by Andrew Robinson, who played Garrick, and is an incredible life story of Garrick. So there's some places there to start with DS Nine, and then there's a ton of different post series novels after that. If you're talking about Voyager, there's a lot of great novels that take place, you know, uh, during the series. Um, there's also Mosaic, which is a really great kind of Janeway story. There's the autobiography of, of uh, Catherine Janeway, which came out recently. But one of the things that's been the most amazing is there are these post-series novels for Voyager, and there are four of them by Christy Golden, which are pretty good, starting with Homecoming and going into the Spirit Walk uh, duology. But where it really gets going is with Kirsten Byers' novel starting with Full Circle, which are some of the very best novels I've read and really deepen those Voyager characters. But when I started reading those, I think I made a mistake in just like dipping right in because there's stuff before it that it builds on. So one of the biggest, like if people are really interested, especially in 24th century Star Trek, one of the biggest places to go, I think, is the Destiny trilogy. Oh, yeah. Which is truly one of the most amazing accomplishments in all of you know the Star Trek novels I've read because it's a this huge crossover with TNG and DS9 and Voyager and Titan and even Enterprise is brought into it, and it's just like this sweeping story about the Borg, and it's like just when you thought (laughs) there were too many Borg stories, this one comes in and it's the best of them all. Um, So also I would say for Enterprise, there's some really great post-series novels as well, especially starting with one called The Good That Men Do, which is... Incredible! It actually builds off of the finale, which I know a lot of people don't like, but it really sets that finale right (laughs) in a really (laughs) great way. And that kicks off a whole bunch of novels that are about, you know, shortly after the show, the Romulan War, the early Federation, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, going forward, there are a lot of really great novels for the the current shows. The Discovery novels are really great. And there's only been, what, seven or eight of them so far, so it's not too hard to get caught up on those. And there's been a couple of Picard novels that are that are so excellent, um, and, and in addition to that, there are Titan novels, which there was a Titan one recently, The Dark Veil, vale, which is more based off of what happens in, in the Picard show, but there are Titan novels um, that kind of push off after Nemesis starting with Taking Wing that are really great, so I know that's like a whole bunch of different directions, but it's like depending on what you're interested in, there's a lot of ways to kind of get into it without feeling like you have to read everything. <laughs>
0: Right, right. It's sort of like a choose your own adventure now. In a way, and I, I love, yeah, what you said about the Destiny trilogy. That one also sticks in my mind as some of the most excellent Star Trek storytelling, um because there's just so much crossover. And that's yeah. one thing that I love about the novels is that it's so easy to do the crossovers between yeah. different series and also different times. Uh, and then all of the post voyager novels by kirsten Beyer, like you said are just spectacular and excellent um and i couldn't agree more with that um yeah i feel like we've talked about other novels enough now (laughs) we should probably (laughs) dive into the ones that we uh planned on talking about and uh that perhaps some of our listeners have also picked up and read um in the past few weeks so the first of those is Ishtar Rising, books one and two by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangels. Um, and so, Justin, do you want to talk about why you selected these two novellas for our discussion today, and sort of set the stage for what is going on in in these two books?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, we, so I know when this topic was was coming up, I. Th- uh, or, or when there needed to be a topic for for this show, I thought, you know, I'm not a scientist like you usually have, but maybe I could talk about, you know, science concepts and Star Trek novels. So I kind of looked through my list of of what I'd read and tried to pick things out. And I was inter- most interested in things that we hadn't seen on screen or really not as much in other novels and really brings up interesting scientific questions and things where I could really ask you questions about stuff to to be filled in. So the the reason this one rose to the top of the list is that it's a story about terraforming Venus. Mm-hmm. Now, I know I, as I did some research I know there have been some ideas going back all the way back to Carl Sagan in the 60s about terraforming Venus, but when you think about that, that's not the easiest candidate because it has this crushing pressure and this noxious, you know, atmosphere that nobody could really survive on for very long. So it seems like something so ambitious, and that you'd need a lot of scientific ingenuity for. But in addition, one of the reasons I chose this was um, these two novellas are part of the Starfleet Corps of Engineers, which is actually my favorite series out of anything in the novels, including the ones that are based on the shows that we see on screen. Oh, wow. Because, and I want to just talk about it a, a little bit sure, just to maybe please. give listeners background. So the the core of engineers I think is something that's referenced a little bit in on-screen Star Trek but I think they had this idea that they wanted to bring that forward and really focus on a crew that solves engineering problems um, and they had introduced it back in 2000 as a way to take advantage of ebooks which were fairly new at the time and they'd have like a pretty much a monthly story and this went on for about 7 years across 74 different novellas so quite wow. a few stories and what I love about it as well is that um, it, it takes some characters that you see on screen. You know, one of the most important characters is Sonia Gomez, who you do see in TNG, starting in Q. Who she's the one who spills the hot chocolate on Picard. <laughs> um, so you see her a little bit there, and I think in a later season two episode. And she's the first officer of this ship called the Da Vinci, which is attached to the Corps of Engineers, and she leads this engineering team. And the novels take place shortly after the Dominion War, about a year after. So there's a lot of kind of interesting stuff happening in the aftermath of the Dominion War. But they just kind of go around and, you know, they're called on to solve engineering issues or to, you know, handle something that, <laughs> that a regular Starfleet crew can't handle. And I love how they go about solving things. And it's a very diverse crew. There are some humans on the crew. But there's also, uh, and we'll talk about it in a later story, there's a, a Nasset, which is named in this series, which is basically like a giant pill bug is how it's described. And it's actually taken from an animated series episode called the Jihad, where there are different kind of people from different areas that are brought together to solve a mystery. Um, And you also have, you know, a pair of binars in this crew. And the binars are a species that I think are super interesting because they communicate, so much in in binary, but they're still organic beings. And you just saw them like once in one episode of TNG season one. So there's like a lot of diversity among the crew. And it also, you get to see not only the engineers, but, you know, the, what happens with the captain and the security officer. And, you know, they have people that are linguists and cultural specialists. So there's they put together this really like interesting, uh, diverse crew. So that's one of the things that that I love about it. But this one in in particular, again, talking about terraforming Venus, that seems like such a monumental undertaking even for the Federation. So what happens in these two novellas is there's this scientist, Dr. Sadia, who has made it kind of his mission to, like, terraform really difficult planets and make them you know livable for humanoid species and he's been working on terraforming Venus for I think six years by this point and he has this incredibly ambitious idea of which I'm going to ask you about some <laughs> questions because there's a lot going on here so he has this ambitious idea for what he wants to do to terraform um, the, the planet um and in the midst of that, he runs into some difficulties and they have to call in the Corps of Engineers uh from their mission over to Venus to help out. And the the whole story is just about how they're going about thinking about this and what the kind of adaptations they're doing in the moment because things go wrong. Of course they do. <laughs> <laughs> um and and but it but it's all they're also great character studies because you get to to know a lot about this character Sadya Um there's a really good perspective into one of the Binar characters in this novel. So, like, I, I had a lot of notes about, like, the character stuff, but also about the science because I think one of the things that I found really interesting was in the acknowledgments on the first book, they actually reference um, a book that is about Venus. I don't know if this is, if you saw this acknowledgment I or didn't. if this is one let you've me read. Sc-
0: let me go scroll there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to read it. Uh, no, or, or you can read it to me. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. So they basically said in the acknowledgements they owed a scientific debt to a book about Venus called Venus Revealed, A New Look Below the Clouds of Our Mysterious Twin Planet by Dr. David Harry Grinspoon. So it was clear, and that was from 1997, and this novella I think was from 2003, so it was relatively recent then. But I think it's cool that they did that research and they pulled out kind of all these scientific ideas. Mm -hmm. So anyway, hopefully that gives like a broad strokes of why I chose this one and thought it was really interesting.
0: Yeah, well, I can tell that they did their research right off the bat. Um, they get a lot of Venus facts, right? Like mm-hmm. you said, uh, a 90-bar crushing atmosphere a bar is a unit of pressure one bar is roughly the atmospheric pressure at the surface of the earth so 90 times that uh, mostly made of co2 with these sulfuric acid smog haze particles suspended in the atmosphere that's very toxic very reducing and acidic Um, and they even mentioned the super rotation layer of venus's atmosphere this like four day
1: period I noticed that, and I, I wanted to ask you about super rota- <laughs> rotation because it <laughs> seems. It seems so. So, what does it mean? It means that kind of things that are circulating in the atmosphere go faster than the rotation of the planet? Is that what it is?
0: That's exactly right, yeah. So Venus is actually a very slow rotator. The solid body of the planet rotates every 243 Earth days. So one wow. day on Venus is 243 <laughs> times the length of a day on Earth. It's a long work week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indeed. Um, and the, uh, the, the, the atmosphere, though, part of the atmosphere rotates once every four days so that's about mm-hmm. 60 times as fast as the solid body um, and this is a really peculiar aspect of venus's atmosphere um, mainly because you need to get some injection of angular momentum into the atmosphere to make it go around that fast and also you need to combat any friction that it would have with the surface or or the lower layers of the atmosphere and how do you keep it going that fast um, and honestly it is something that we the scientific community still don't have a good grasp of why this happens. Um, And, you know, (laughs) when I read this book, and I noticed that they actually had the super rotation, my eyes lit up and I was like, that's great. I'm going to talk about this. Although I don't quite understand it. But I'm pretty (laughs) sure I could just ping my atmospheric dynamicist friend Pushkar Kaparla, who was on this podcast years ago, because he actually studies the motions of Venus's atmosphere specifically. Mm. And I was like, Pushkar, can you give me like, a quick and easy explanation of why venus's atmosphere super rotates and he was like no (laughs) there is no quick and easy explanation because we still don't understand it but We're getting a better handle of it um, these days, especially with the uh, Japanese orbiter Akatsuki, which is taking some amazing data of Venus's atmosphere and really noticing the motions of its clouds uh, in the ultraviolet spectrum. And that's giving us some better hints of what's going on. But I would say that the full story has yet to be discovered.
1: Yeah, I, I mean... I, and that brings up a question in my mind, like do they do they know why in the twenty fourth century and would that be important to know in order to to do this plan to terraform the planet i don't know
0: maybe yeah, I would think I would hope so um and the other thing that you mentioned about the book being uh, david grinspoon's book uh David Grinspoon is. Uh, a famous planetary scientist and uh, made his name studying uh, Venus's atmosphere. So uh, that is that is a legitimate source of information.
1: <laughs> cool. Yeah. And, and I, w- I was pleased with that, too. I mean, I always love it when, you know, authors or people that are involved in the Star Trek shows go straight to like a really great scientific source to get information. And it seems like they did for this. So, so anyway, you were listing off kind of things that they, they got right. Are there other things that, that you were like, oh, that's really cool that this is in here?
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, they noticed that, you know, Venus has uh, this lethal heat at the base of the atmosphere, which is true. It's it's hot enough to melt lead down there. Um, and I guess this is interesting to note because in early science fiction works, Venus was depicted as this like cold, damp swamp world, because all we <laughs> knew about Venus decades ago, uh, you know, pre-60s and things like that, was that Venus seemed very cloudy. And so Mm -hmm. when when we looked at Venus in a telescope, you couldn't see any surface features. You just saw this blinding bright light of reflected sunlight off of the clouds. And so everybody just assumed, oh, beneath the clouds, it's going to be a swamp. But later we got a better understanding of, okay, Venus's clouds are actually made of sulfuric acid and the base of the atmosphere is like 730 Kelvin. (laughs) It's not a suitable place for anything uh, living. And, uh, And so it's just an interesting transition you can see our knowledge of venus's atmosphere and surface evolve through the science fiction as as people wrote about what they thought might be on venus
1: and an interesting thing i thought about as i was rereading this is i know you know recently there i think you talked about it on on the podcast there was you know this study where they thought they had found phosphine in venus's atmosphere and oh oh, maybe that's you know life forms, bacteria or something that are, that are doing that. And as I was reading this and all the stuff they're doing to the planet, I'm thinking at least by the 24th century, they think there's nothing alive on this thing <laughs> right? <laughs> or they wouldn't do this. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I thought about that as, you know, and people have also speculated, you know, maybe that there are creatures that are kind of floating in some part of the atmosphere where it's more livable or something mm-hmm. like that. But, but this, yeah, in in this book, it's just like, there's nothing living there and we just need to, to deal with the atmosphere and all the stuff going on so people can live there, right?
0: Right. Yeah. Take that, Phosphate. No. <laughs> um, okay. Well, yeah. You're touching upon a couple of very excellent points, and I'll just spend a little bit of time on each of them. So the first thing is that, like you said, if there was anything living on Venus, we wouldn't want to terraform it. At least that that would be the decision of the scientists and engineers involved in this book and they note that the reason why mars yeah. isn't terraformed more in the star trek universe is because in the 21st century we discovered that there were microbes on mars and that yeah that blew my mind right that was amazing to see and and almost I don't know. It's 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 kind of cool, but it's also like, has that a- actually been established elsewhere in Star Trek that we discovered microbes on Mars? Because um, it's like a momentous thing,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. I I noticed that too. I mean, of course, this is written in the 21st century, so they had you know 97 years to be right or wrong about it. But but um, but yeah, I found that really interesting too. That they were noting these like you know there was Martian life that had been found, microscopic or or bacteria or something like that, right? Um, but in Star Trek. You know we've we've seen Mars a couple of times. I mean, I think we see it in in Enterprise in the um, in the two-parter toward the end of the the show, where you know the, this guy is trying to use this uh, what is it? It's some array or something to to threaten Earth to get his way to get all the aliens to leave. Yeah, um, Terra Prime. That's it. Uh, I was trying to think of the name. And and you also I think you see Mars with the attack on Mars and Picard. You see Utopia Planitia in Voyager and maybe one or two other places, but you know, they don't really talk about the history of what's there, except that people are doing stuff there in the 24th century, right?
0: Right. And every time we see Mars in Star Trek, it's still this red world. You don't mm-hmm. see oceans. You don't see green vegetation. Yeah. It looks like Mars has pretty much been untouched besides maybe a because few bases. Because of
1: that 21st century discovery of Exactly, bacteria. right.
0: And so this is really important i think because it is something that we need to think about today in terms of our exploration of mars we're of course very interested in looking for life on mars but the big question is not just is there life on mars but if we discover that there is life on mars what do we do then and um, Carl Sagan, who surprise, surprise, actually appears He's in, in this, this novel book, as, yeah. a, as a holographic character. Which I, I was just jumping up and down when I read that. I thought that, that, was, that was so, so cool. cool. Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> and you get to and you get to see him try to adjust to 24th century ideas as a hologram. Yeah.
0: Adjust the 24th century ideas, but also still express that that hesitation about terraforming, especially if there happens to, if there is a chance that there is life uh, uh, there. Uh, So Carl Sagan actually had a quote um, when he was writing about Mars, and I I think it's really an appropriate quote for this book. So he talks about, um, you know, We're exploring Mars right now, but there will be a time when Mars is all explored, a time after robot aircraft have mapped it from aloft, a time after rovers have combed the surface, a time after samples have been returned safely to Earth, a time after human beings have walked the sands of Mars. And then he says, what then? What shall we do with Mars? And he says these very important words. There are so many examples of human misuse of the Earth that even phrasing this question chills me. If there is life on Mars, I believe we should do nothing with Mars. Mars then belongs to the Martians, even if the Martians are only microbes. The existence of an independent biology on a nearby planet is a treasure beyond assessing. And the preservation of that life must, I think, supersede any other possible use of Mars. That is so important because that is basically... Forecasting the prime directive, right? Yeah. That's Carl Sagan is talking about our version of the prime directive, and I, yeah. I think that's that's super important for us to keep in mind as we explore other planets.
1: Yeah, I, I love that, and I think it it is a really important question. And <laughs> based on how people think even of human life sometimes it does it does uh make me concerned about what people would think they'd be like oh they're just microbes you know we just need to use that planet for our own purposes and who cares right might be the attitude
0: justin's about to move us on to another topic but i just want to put in a quick word about phosphine on venus What we've been referring to is a scientific paper that came out late last year, 2020, reporting the discovery of a gas called phosphine in Venus's atmosphere, and claiming that it could be a potential sign of life. I actually haven't covered this discovery on Strange New Worlds yet, but I did go on Rose Eveleth's Flash Forward podcast to chat about it and the topic of life elsewhere in general. I do, in fact, plan on doing an episode on Phosphine on Venus right here on Strange New Worlds, but in the future. Right now, science is still trying to figure out what exactly to make of it all. Many research groups have reanalyzed the data and done their own follow-up calculations, including my own. We put out a paper earlier this year that came to a different interpretation of the data, one that casts doubt on it being a biosignature. So why have I been so silent about this topic on this podcast so far? Well, I think the thing to remember is that no one paper alone is science. Science is a process, it's a mode of thinking, of debating, of utilizing evidence and facts and reason. And it's usually not an instant answer, and that answer is never final. The discussions that scientists are currently having around the recent discovery of phosphine on Venus is science at work, and we need to let that scientific process play itself out. But regardless of whether there's phosphine on Venus, regardless of whether there's life in those clouds, Venus is a glorious world, and we definitely need to go back to explore it. And that's what Justin and I are about to do.
1: So I, <laughs> I I was curious about this plan that they have for what they want to do to make it kind of more livable for humanoid life. Because they have this idea, I think, that they're going to take these network of force fields and be able to, what is it, they're going to heat the atmosphere so it, what, rises up and goes off into space? Was that your impression of what they were looking to do?
0: Yeah, I, I wasn't, I, I guess I didn't catch on the heating the atmosphere so much as the just forcing the atmosphere up with the force fields. Just you're, you're going to have this force field barrier that slowly rises, pushing the atmosphere. Oh,
1: I actually have a quote in here if it might be helpful because ah, yeah, they're please. talking about it. So. um I think this is from this is from Sonia Gomez actually talking about Sadia's plan as she's talking to the Corps of Engineers to bring them up to speed. Okay. She said his plan is to use specially shielded tandem-operated field generators to create a partially gas-permeable force field. The overall operation will follow a carefully orchestrated meteorological plan, but the field will constantly adjust itself to adapt in real time to observe changes in air pressure, temperature, and velocity as it envelops the entire planet and slowly expands outward toward the sunward side. And then she continues a bit later... The goal is to push the bulk of the atmosphere far enough away from the surface so that the sun will heat it even further, blowing most of it off into space in a matter of days. Maybe that's where I got the heating part. Like, once it gets high enough, I guess it's heated more by the sun? Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure how that would work, but...
0: Your your confusion is valid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, this is where it's getting into the science fiction part of it, but... Uh, yeah. But yeah, like... and and uh oh actually there's more sorry (laughs) she says the net result is a quick reduction of both the atmospheric pressure and the greenhouse effect in the direction of something considerably more earth-like than what's there now process should knock hundreds of degrees off the planet's surface temperature virtually overnight
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay yeah so let's talk about this so i guess the the basic science of this is that venus's atmosphere is just too thick right now um 90 bars of carbon dioxide, and that creates an immense greenhouse effect that makes the surface unlivable. So in order to um, make Venus a livable planet, you need to somehow get rid of that atmosphere. Um, So the plan uh, that Dr. Sadia puts together is essentially to push the atmosphere into space. And this is based on principles that we know do exist in terms of how planetary atmospheres get lost over geologic time. Mm-hmm. Um, the, most of that loss is is to space. It just, uh, uh, atmosphere will escape the planet's gravitational well and just diffuse into the vacuum of outer space. This has happened especially on Mars. Mars is a much smaller planet than Venus or Earth, so a lot of its atmosphere is gone, and now Mars's surface pressure is like six one-thousandths that of the Earth. Um, But apparently you need to force this to happen on Venus. And so they plan on forcing it to happen with these force fields that will push the atmosphere up. I think it's a a creative idea, but I can actually see a couple of big problems with why it wouldn't work in reality. So the first has to do with the geometry of what they're proposing. The the plan is to create sort of like an egg-like force field around Venus, uh, pushing the atmosphere up only on the day side and not on the night side and the idea behind this is that only the day side is being exposed to the sun so only the day side needs the heat up to go and escape into space Mm -hmm. but the problem is that an atmosphere is a fluid medium and so what i think you'll end up doing if you if you have this asymmetric geometry is you end up just pushing the atmosphere to the night side where it will reside. Mm. And you can think of this as sort of like a swimming pool is the analogy that I use in my head. Uh, so if, if you imagine a swimming pool, right, the surface of the pool is, the, is water and it's flat. And now imagine you you sort of like slowly raise the bottom of part of the pool, like make, making it a sloped bottom so that part of the pool is shallow and part of, part of the pool is deeper. You're not going to raise the water on the shallow portion above the water on the deep end. The pool is just going to readjust to a a constant level Mm -hmm. uh, in in what scientifically we would call hydrostatic equilibrium. I think the atmosphere is going to do the same thing on Venus. That geometry is probably not going to work.
1: So I'm curious, (laughs) but would it work better if they tried to just push it up everywhere at once?
0: Exactly, yeah. So I think it would work better if they tried to push everywhere at once. You would need to push on on the night side as well as the day side. But then the issue is, is this even going to work at all (laughs) Um, based on the, the, the idea that the way atmospheres escape is that there is a level in the atmosphere called the exobase above the exobase atmospheric particles don't really bump into each other, which means they're allowed to very quickly escape into space. If they have enough kinetic energy, if they're moving fast enough with enough velocity to escape the gravity of the planet, they just will. Below that, they may have enough energy to escape, but they're constantly rattling against all the other atmospheric particles. So it's very unlikely that they're gonna achieve an escape trajectory. So this exobase is determined not just by the planet's gravity and the temperature there, but also just by the the sheer number of other particles around, the pressure or the density of the atmosphere. And if you just raise the base of the atmosphere up, the exobase is going to raise as well. And so you're not actually pushing more of that atmosphere above the exobase, um, because the exobase will move in tandem with the rest of the atmosphere. So I guess what I'm saying is that it's not going to really work. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the, what, what you do get with raising the entire atmosphere is you get a little bit farther away from the planet, which means the gravity is a little bit less, but only by a couple of percent. Uh, you would really need to move the atmosphere really far away from Venus. Uh, and and according to this plan, moving it a couple tens of kilometers up isn't really going mm. to... It's just a small smidgen of the entire planet's radius. Um, and then you're also moving it ever so slightly closer to the sun. So technically you should be warmer, but also the distance that you're moving it closer to the sun is minuscule compared to the total distance between the sun and Venus. So yeah. I think I, I I foresee a few issues with this, uh, with this plan.
1: But like a question that I have as well is let's assume everything goes well and it is completely successful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You mentioned that um atmospheres escaping can happen over geologic time so millions or billions of years so it's like a little bit at a time that's escaping right just little bits Mm -hmm. but what if you had like let's say 90 percent of the atmosphere of venus is this giant cloud of co2 it's not going to disperse as much i would think like isn't there a problem that you have this big cloud and what's going to happen to it or is is that fine and it just kind of disperses out into space gradually
0: (laughs) Well, space is space is pretty big. So That's I true. think, it, yeah, <laughs> I don't think space will care if you put yeah, in 90 bars of CO2. Well, space into, might
1: not care, but will it be like this big cloud that people have to navigate around for a while? I don't know.
0: <laughs> maybe, maybe a little bit, um, but it, okay. I think it'll quickly, once it's, once it's up there, it'll get torn to shreds by cosmic rays and things like that. And yeah, it'll just get a bunch of atomic carbon and oxygen.
1: Okay. Okay. So maybe that's not as big of an issue as getting it away in the first place. Right. Um, So one of the things I think that struck me about this book as well is that I think they were trying to solve, I don't know which problem it was. Maybe it had to do with the magnetic field or something. Like, let's tow Mercury into the orbit of Venus and make it a moon. (laughs) Like, what did you think (laughs) of that idea?
0: Uh, yeah, I think that that's a little bit crazy as <laughs> well. <laughs> um, yeah, so the reason that they cite for why you would tow Mercury into the orbit of Venus to make it a moon of Venus is because you need to have tidal forces to get Venus's uh, magnetic field up and running. So as far as we know, Venus doesn't have any sort of magnetic dynamo uh, creating a global magnetic field the way that Earth does. And Earth's magnetic field is important because it keeps harmful radiation away, helps actually retain our atmosphere, uh, and also keeps the surface safe from from harmful uh, radiation from the sun and elsewhere. Um, So if you wanted to make Venus livable, you would probably want to have a magnetic field, or at least it would help. And so the idea is that planetary magnetic fields are created by the churning motion of iron in their liquid cores, so moving Electrically conducting fluids will create magnetic field lines that encompass the planet. And so by putting Mercury in orbit of Venus, they hypothesize that the gravitational pull of Mercury, or these tidal forces as they call them, will... Cause Venus's interior to stir enough to you know get uh, these this magnetic fields running, and that sounds a little bit implausible to me. Just because if you think about tidal forces here on Earth, how 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 much does the solid part of Earth move due to tides? You can't even notice it at all. You can notice the fluid motion of the water. You know, I don't know if you live anywhere near near the ocean, but you know tides come in and out. Yeah, Yeah, right. You can notice that, but the the solid part of the planet doesn't really move that much due to tides. And so Mercury probably isn't going to pull on Venus in any sort of fashion that would cause the magnetic field to jumpstart because those types of motions, the, the, the fluid motions in the core of a planet are huge, right? They're, they're convective motions that encompass hundreds, maybe even thousands of kilometers. And that kind of motion is, is fueled by essentially heat transfer. The heat that needs that is is pent up in the cer- in, in the interior of the planet needing to try to escape it and causing convection. Um so I'm not sure if tidal forces are gonna cut it there, but
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I I'm just curious, like if you did want to get a magnetic field going, like what would be the best way to do that? <laughs> or maybe there isn't a great uh, way. Especially I... <laughs> especially in a human lifetime, maybe, I don't know.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, that's the thing, is that um the, the this part of the planet is so deep down it's i mean okay science fiction has 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 dealt with this before i think there was like the movie the core or something like that where they needed to go down and jump start the magnetic field and they s- exploded like a bunch of nuclear bombs or something <laughs> like i yeah it's 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 only in the realm of science fiction as far as i know that you would even dream of trying to start or stop a planet's own magnetic field simply because you're talking about things that are so deep inside of a planet and so massive as well. I mean the, the entire liquid outer core needs to yeah. get set going. This is this is a, a large fraction of the mass of the planet that you need to, to to kick into motion.
1: I mean, at the same time, in there are parts of TNG, for example, where we see that there's some I don't know, some problem with a, a planet, and they can just take their phasers and just drill things in, and it just <laughs> kind of fixes stuff, right? Yeah. So they have a lot of power, I guess, but...
0: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. I I guess that would be the way to do it. Um, in, in Star Trek's time, with the technology that is available in the 24th century, it would be probably something more of setting off a a tachyon nadion (laughs) polaron explosion (laughs) you know just throw some sci-fi magic words in there uh and 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 forget mercury leave mercury where it is just
1: beam some photon torpedoes into the core of the planet or something right (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: exactly um the other reason why i don't really like the idea of taking mercury and putting it in orbit of venus is you're kind of kind of ruining
1: mercury too i mean mercury
0: yeah. is its own planet uh, and why would you make it a moon of something else i mean just leave it where
1: it is yeah and it and um you know in in this series of of novels uh scotty is actually the kind of head of the corps of engineers and i think he really hates this idea too it's like why are you gonna mess with that but i mean in this novel they kind of don't have to do that because of the thing that happens which i want to ask you about because as they're doing this and trying to you know push the atmosphere away all of a sudden gigantic magma eruptions start happening and it mentions in this um uh in these stories that every 500 million years or so there's some kind of eruption like this um because they don't have plate tectonics and the stress builds up so is that right that happens about every half billion years on venus
0: What we do know is that the last time this happened, it was 500 million years ago or half billion years ago. So yes, that is grounded in true science. Based on the cratering record on a a planet's surface, uh, we can judge its age. And because there aren't very many craters on Venus's surface, it looks relatively young, geologically speaking, which means the entire surface was completely renewed about half a billion years ago. Uh, And people call this, like, a catastrophic resurfacing, likely to do with intense volcanism and um, tectonic activity that wiped out whatever was there before and made a brand-new surface. Okay. I I don't know if we would say for certain that this happens like clockwork every 500 million years, but uh, b- mainly because we don't have any records of what happened before this thing because it, it completely erased yeah. um, the surface before. But yeah, that okay. is grounded in real science.
1: Okay, that's good. Because, yeah, and I think it's interesting what happens with their ultimate solution has to do with I don't know, it it seems like they're using the force fields to kind of try to push that magma out into space and it starts like orbiting the planet and almost like forming into a ring, maybe eventually a moon. So that could help instead of having Mercury. But I I, I was just trying to picture like what they were talking about with with this what they're doing with the magma and shooting that into space. Did, did that make sense to you, what they were talking about?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, kind of, but <laughs> at the same time, no. Uh, so let's see. L- the, basically, the idea was that as they were pushing the atmosphere up, like you said, there was some volcanic events that started spewing magma all over the surface and endangering the people who are on the surface um, who are running the force field generators. And the solution from the lone Binar on the, on board the Da Vinci or from the Da Vinci crew yeah. was that uh, they would reconfigure the force fields to essentially suck up this magma and throw it into space, forming a ring around <laughs> Venus. And I mean, if you, ha- if you already have giant uh, uh, force fields that can push a 90 bar atmosphere up to space, why not let it also suction magma <laughs> <up>. <laughs> I mean fine. Um, but, but what I like about this is that there were consequences to pushing the atmosphere because when you push the atmosphere up you're essentially creating a vacuum right and, uh, and, and that vacuum could have devastating consequences on the geology of a planet. Uh, and the the interior and surface of a planet is highly connected to the atmosphere. Um, And in a sort of backwards kind of way from what happened in the book, uh, scientists right now are trying to figure out ways to learn more about the interior of Venus, which is currently inaccessible, but we can gain insights into what the interior structure is by the coupling between the interior and the atmosphere. So if you imagine putting a probe in the atmosphere that can sense atmospheric waves and disturbances, uh, and then you imagine an earthquake, or a Venus quake in this case, happening on Venus, the shaking from that Venus quake will actually propagate waves into the atmosphere. And if your probe is there, you can sense those waves and try to understand in in a seismology sort of sense from those waves what the interior structure of Venus is, which is really a really, really cool idea and has been proposed recently in the scientific literature. And maybe there will be a mission to Venus in our lifetimes that will do this. But that's basically to say that what happens in the geology of Venus, whether it's an earthquake or volcanic explosion, is highly connected to the atmosphere. So I would absolutely agree with the idea that if you were to disturb the atmosphere greatly, you would also be disturbing the geology of Venus.
1: I did feel as I read this, though, I mean, I think it's needed for the drama of the story, but I did feel like this scientist that was running things seemed very, like, enthusiastic about, like, yeah, we need to get this done, but he keeps missing these things that create problems somehow. (laughs) Uh, But but I would think, you know, they would know about that connection between the atmosphere and what's going on inside the planet and try to figure out some way around it or anticipate that. But yeah, I, I don't know. It, it it just felt like, oh, uh, that's a big thing to miss. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like some unexpected thing like some alien species comes by and messes with your plans. It's something that the planet itself is doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think this is great because we've talked about like a lot of the science and a lot of what happens in this novel. But I think one, one of the other things I think that's really interesting about this, and I guess apologies since it's a bit of a spoiler for something earlier in the Corps of Engineers, but we've talked about it already – is on the Da Vinci they have this lone Binar uh, who calls himself Solo Man. And it's actually part of the kind of early stories of the Corps of Engineers. He's part of this pair of Binars and one of them dies, right? And in Binar society, it's considered like, only acceptable for you to be in these pairs that work together and communicate so effectively and kind of, as we see in the TNG episode, they like build on and finish each other's sentences, right? It's like very interconnected. But in those stories, he kind of decides to stay by himself. And okay, so one of the things I think that's interesting about Corps of Engineers is I thought it was always implied in the episode of TNG that they didn't really have a gender, but... They seem to talk about genders in these Corps of Engineers stories. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's a certain interpretation. But anyway, he decides he's going to kind of stay on his own, but is has to work with this pair of binars as part of this project of terraforming Venus. And they are kind of disgusted by him and at, at a certain point they talk about him as living a perverse lifestyle and automatically in my head I was like this is supposed to be you know a metaphor for people who are lgbtq right like yeah. the, but this perversity right same um, thing pops into my mind yeah, yeah. and i th- and 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 it is a, a through line for some of the other stories i think what's great at the end of this story is he feels like okay binus their binar homeworld i can't really consider it my home but this crew and what i found here is home which i think was really beautiful because they really accept him but but i just thought that kind of you know prejudice from these binars was really striking and interesting to see in this in this story and i think they're supposed to be part of the federation right um so and we've seen in star trek there is prejudice on federation worlds and things like that but it just felt very striking in this story not only having to deal with the science and engineering issues but this like extreme prejudice as well. Like they really consider him to be just beneath notice. <laughs> so I was yeah. curious what you thought about that part of the story.
0: Right. I picked up on this as well. And I'm so glad you brought it up because I think it really is the emotional core of the story, which is solo man's trying to find Legitimacy for himself—that—that's his pronoun, right? It's a him, right? It is, yeah. Uh, okay, so it really reminded me of this uh, Toni Morrison quote. Toni Morrison was speaking about racism, but prejudice against you know a certain lifestyle is is also. And uh, maybe not equivalent, but like it it has a similar effect. So Toni Morrison says uh, the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again, your reason for being. Uh, And I feel like solo man experiences this as he is trying to work with the two binars who are part of project um, Ishtar rising. And they're trying to do these calculations together, but, he's sort of the, the the third wheel to their binary pair. Uh, and as they're doing these calculations at a rapid pace to try to solve the problems that are arising with this uh, project, he keeps on second-guessing himself. He's like, why, why am I here? Am I an outlier? Uh, they're doing yeah. these things at that pace. Uh, are they judging me as they're doing their calculations? And he starts to feel like he... Needs He feels unjustified being there and he keeps on needing to be distracted to remind himself that he is justified for being there as a Starfleet officer, as an expert in the Corps of Engineers. And that is taking away time and mental energy from actually doing the work at hand.
1: Yeah. And I think one thing that was also striking in this That I'd forgotten about so the the doctor on uh, the da Vinci doctor lens who's actually a DS9 character (laughs) had a minor role in one of the episodes Um, She she was actually the one who was the valedictorian in Bashir's class when Bashir had you know made that that error on the question and people always question whether she was the valedictorian, and I think she was um, in one episode. But anyway, she's the doctor in the series and they get to talking about like a three-way binar link and it can lead to brain damage or death. (laughs) It's like, whoa, that's unexpected. But uh, so, I mean, not only is there this prejudice, but it's just like, if it gets beyond the pair of two, it could seriously damage you. And I I thought that was kind of an interesting kind of idea, but, but the solo man character is actually a really um, compelling one for me. And this is just, you know, one story, but there are a lot of other stories where he's kind of dealing with his his status as someone who's very different from his society, and I thought that it was just it was just really interesting to see that revealed along with all the action and science and stuff that was going on it, it, to me it rounded out the story and to say something important about that mm mm-hmm, mm hmm so I, I guess one thing I should say is so these are part of the Starfleet Corps of Engineers novellas if you go out to buy just these ones individually uh, uh, at least in the US for the ebook it's like $6 each and they're I don't know how long each each of these ones is but you know it adds up to 100 and something pages so it feels expensive but there are bigger collections of these stories so this one is part of a collection called Aftermath um, which is I don't know the seventh or eighth collection. There's a lot of them, but but like if you're really interested in getting to the core of Engineers, I would start with Have Tech Will Travel, which is like a kind of paperback collection of the first four stories. So that's how I would read them. I mean, if you've already gone ahead and bought this, that's and to read it along with us, I think that's great. But it is, a, it feels a bit expensive when you buy the individual ones as opposed to like the the paperback collections.
0: That's a good note.
1: Yeah and and also the author of this Andy um, Mangles and Michael A Martin they've written a lot of other really great novels, and I just wanted to call out kind of a couple of them if people are interested in these authors. So, I think I mentioned the, the Titan novels. So, they wrote the first two of them, Taking Wing and the Red King, which are really good. They wrote The Good That Men Do, which I mentioned about Enterprise, and they also wrote a Lost Era book, so between Star Trek VI and uh, TNG called The Sundered. So I right just here. wanted to mention a couple others by this. Yeah, you got it right there. <laughs> by, by these authors that are really great. <laughs>
0: You're listening to my conversation with Trek podcaster and Star Trek novel enthusiast Justin Ozer. We'll be back soon with part two, where Justin and I will cover the science in the Starfleet Corps of Engineers novella, Balance of Nature. That should probably drop in about a week, but I am getting my second dose of COVID vaccine between now and then, And I hear that one can really put you out. So please forgive me if it takes a little bit longer to process part two of this episode. Anyway, immunity is totally worth a little podcast delay. And if a vaccine is available where you are too, I highly encourage you, please, please, please go and get it. It's scientifically proven to work against COVID, and it's not just helping you, but everyone else around you too. Something, something, something about the needs of the many, right? Okay, until next time, see you out there.